The following program is brought to you by Caltech. So, so we have two talks back to back to conclude the, the short course. The first one's on uh, autonomy practices, and the next one will be on uh, titled Ultra Reliability for Interstellar Missions. Um, the second talk is actually more about space, is, is somewhat about space environments. But coming back to the autonomy talk, um, we have uh, Professor Brian Williams. He leads the model-based embedded and robotic systems group with, within the computer science and AI lab at MIT. His research um, concentrates on model-based autonomy, uh, the creation of long-lived systems that explore autonomously while commanding, diagnosing, and repairing themselves using fast, common-sense reasoning. Professor Williams received his uh, degrees, his bachelor's and master's degree in 81 and 84 and PhD in 89 in computer science and electrical engineering at MIT. He's worked at um, briefly at uh, Xerox Palo Alto Research and NASA Ames prior to joining the faculty at MIT. He is a pioneer in the field of qualitative reasoning, model-based diagnosis, and autonomous systems. He received the NASA Space Act Award for Remote Agent, the first fully autonomous self Repairing Space Explorer demonstrated on board NASA uh, Deep Space One probe in May of 1999. He is currently a member of the Advisory Council of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Brian? Great. Good. So, the, so I've been impressed by the last couple of speakers, how they can, I mean, particularly all control theory in, in an hour. Um, we'll see how I do in terms of autonomous systems. The, the material I'll present here very much kind of links to a number of the other speakers beforehand. Um, the work that, that I'll describe kind of in autonomy um, on the space side kind of originated from a project that Bob Rasmussen uh, and Kim Gosso was involved in. Lorraine Fesk and I were, you know, were both kind of heavily involved in this. Um, Mitch Ingham will see some things kind of related to his thesis presented here. And um, for all those of you now that you are experts in control theory, this is just model predictive control. So, um, so that's how it's linked. So, in terms of developing autonomous systems, there's a number of things that we would like them to achieve. Several of them are related to resilience. Several of them are related to being able to talk to our autonomous systems like another human. Those include, for example, um, developing a programming paradigm, right, and 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 a design approach to developing robotic systems that we can command simply in an intuitive manner um, that they can adapt to uncertainty and failure, which is certainly a central theme of this workshop, um, that we have the ability to communicate to the robotic system at a cognitive level, but also it can communicate back at a cognitive level, um, which is probably more of an, a recent theme. Also, um, we've been increasingly interested in more fluid coordination between humans and robotic systems. I'll give you some examples of that. And then finally, um, to have our autonomous systems have some sense of risk themselves and know when to not do something something stupid, um, and that's also more recent work. Um, so what I'll try to do is I'll try to go and do a balance between teaching you what might be considered the fundamentals, to the extent that, that there's fundamentals in autonomous systems, but I didn't want to get stuck in the 80s. So what I'll try to do is I'll try to leapfrog you a couple times very quickly to, to results more during the last 10 years, and then we'll see whether or not that all adds up to 60 minutes. Um, otherwise, I'll be doing some adaptation online. Okay, so if you talk about autonomous systems, there's a very broad set of architectures. If you look within the space arena, there's been a couple of themes. One has been first to focus on autonomous operations, and that's how do you manage an autonomous system robustly. And I'll particularly focus on that. Um, work such as the remote agent, which I'll describe, which was demonstrated in Deep Space One, was focused on the issue of autonomous operations. It tends to combine planning and execution, because everything's planning and execution, together with fault diagnosis and fault recovery. Um, also, there's been a lot of work in autonomous, um, autonomous science. Um, uh, Tara, for example, does work on that. Steve Chen does work on that one. Um, so the autonomous science craft experiment is an example of that kind of autonomy architecture. And it focuses the interplay between kind of mission planning and then methods for detecting and analyzing science data. Um, and kind of with the big theme on big data these days, that's an increasingly important focus. Um, of course, when we talk about robotic missions in space, right, MER, um, or the upcoming uh, Mars mission that we're, um, that we're biting our nails on. Then the coupling between higher level decision making um, and various navigation methods for either for um, entry, descent, and landing or moving on a planetary service, 
surface are very important. Clarity, for example, is an architecture that tries to take the higher level decision making that I'll talk about here and coupling that together into different navigation methods. Um, and then there's also increasingly a focus on, on mixed initiative interaction, humans and, humans and autonomous systems working together. Um, earlier this, this summer, I was part of a National Academy study, um, study on human-machine coordination, and that's also a big theme as well. Um, within the NASA arena, um, you know, there's a whole, whole range of, of tools. Um, MapGen is one of those tools. I actually apologize, I've forgotten the most recent names of those are all centered around how humans interact with the automation at various levels. Um, and I'll give you some examples of that kind of within the academic community. So in this talk, what I'm going to do is to try to devote about 15 minutes each to four topics. So um, first, what I'll talk about is the notion of an architecture as something which is goal-directed, and it's going to execute some tasks, and it's going to do it robustly. And I'll focus on two examples, or, or two or three different examples of, of goal-directed execution. So the central theme in here of an autonomous system, you give it a task at a high level of abstraction. Its job is to execute that task robustly. Um, then I'll talk about three different comp supporting components that allow you to execute these tasks. Um, and that'll include the ability to dispatch the task, right? So if you look at most space missions, and they have a sequencer which is dispatching tasks, um, that executive doesn't have a lot of flexibility in terms of its decision making, will respect the fact that people like to provide task descriptions or sequences to execute, and then we'll try to expand the comfort, and kind of move up the comfort zone of the operators in terms of adding in decision making within the sequencer, and we'll do that by letting our system do arithmetic before we have doing algebra and calculus. Um, people may, and so I'll talk about how we dispatch those tasks, I'll then talk about how do we diagnose the system or how do we monitor the effects of the commands that we send out, that's called diagnosis mode estimation, and then finally I'll talk about how do we actually generate novel behaviors. Now some view, and the traditional view of AI is it's all about plan generation and then these are a bunch of boring things that are just software to try to execute those plans. If you talk about the world of adopting these technologies, then the last thing that you want to do is to just generate a completely, completely bizarre novel behavior that you don't trust. Um, our viewpoint very much is that the generation of new actions is in service of, of, of dispatching the task. Um, and hence, that's why I put it at the end. Um, and all this, again, again, you can think of it as being, as being, um, as being a form of, of kind of optimization-enabled control. Okay, so. Um, when I got into this business at, Na at NASA, right, I think before NASA, uh, as an artificial intelligence researcher, we'd spent a lot of time studying how do engineers think, how do they do diagnosis and repair, and developing techniques to do, to do diagnosis, repair, planning. Those were mainly considered to be offline techniques. The drive of autonomous systems at NASA um, um, put those kinds of capabilities on board the spacecraft as a control system. Um, the kinds of systems that NASA would be concerned with I think this thing is about to break, um, is, is such as this. So this is Cassini, you know, example that Bob Rasmussen came to, came to us with. He had spent um, probably at least a decade working on the attitude and articulation control system for Cassini and coming up with an effective, um, you know, architecture for, ma for fault management of the system. There's a couple issues here. There's a large number of components, right, and a much smaller number of sensors. So the system is, is under-sensed, and that means from the sensors you'll need to be able to isolate what of several um, interacting components is faulty, right? So there's the hidden state problem. The second problem is that there's a significant amount of redundancy in the system. For example, there's dual main engines, dual regulators, a lot of redundancy in the valves in the system. Um, there's a lot of flexibility in the system because of that redundancy, um, but um, that means that there's a very wide space of possible recovery options, um, and you need computational tools both to aid in considering the, the, the space of possible recoveries and the space of possible diagnoses. Okay. So the engineering operations problem is how do we work in the boiler room and kind of operate those systems? Um, you know, after, after many years, or, or I guess after not so many years, about, about a year and a half of effort, an autonomous systems was, was developed to first um, operate a simulated version of Cassini um, that was sufficiently successful that a autonomy architecture was developed and demonstrated on the NASA vSpace-1 probe. Um, that architecture called remote agent. And there were a couple of architectural principles. The first is the notion that the, um, that the, um, that the system is commanded by a set of goals. And we'll talk about it in, in a minute what we mean by goals. Um, those goals will evolve over time. Um, that we map from those goals to a set of actions by reasoning from a set of common sense 
models. Um, those are kind of discrete logical models, resource models. Um, and then finally, that, that the system is closed loop, so every time you command, it interprets its sensors to infer that, in fact, you're achieving the command um, desired output and that you're confirming that you're achieving your goal. And those are kind of three different principles of autonomous systems that we'll see in, in many autonomous systems before and, and subsequent. Um, and, and again, the development of this capability was a contribution to many of the people here, Dan Dvorak, for example, and, and others. Okay, so, and then there was an autonomy demonstration which demonstrated the ability to be resilient to failure. It had a wide set of different recoveries from the, the level of simply being able to detect that some component was faulty and cutting it out, uh, resetting that device all, all the way up to kind of coming up with a novel, a novel mission plan. Um, and those were, those were validated over a two, a two period, you know, during, during those three days. And I, I won't spend a lot more time talking about that, but that did motiv motivate the kind of capabilities that I'm gonna be presenting during the rest of the talk here. Okay, so if we step back from this, then, then um, as we said, we want these goal-directed systems, which are reasoned by a model to be able to robustly execute a course of action. Um, I'm gonna refer to that as model-based autonomy. And one of the central questions that we've been pursuing since then is, what are a set of effective languages for guiding an autonomous system, given that, that a system has this level of capability? Um, how do we execute that program? Um, and then, how do we interact with the human? And I'll give you one case study of this, I'll give you a language called RMPL, the Reactive Model-Based Programming Language, um, is one example of language for guiding the kind of autonomous system that elements that I showed you in Remote Agent. The second is an executive called Titan, um, and then, then uh, later on in the talk, I'll, I'll give you an example of, of a natural human interaction. Okay, so what we wanna be able to do is, is we wanna be able to guide these at a much higher level of abstraction. Uh, the concept is, is that we would like to have systems engineers be able to give a mission specification and have those executed directly. Um, so here's an example of a mission specification for an entry, descent, and landing mission. And I could go through each of the different phases. Um, this is actually from Mitch Ingham's thesis, so it's a very old set of slides. Um, no, not so old, right? <laughs> just, just a couple years ago, right? 10 years ago. So, um, and so what we'll notice, for example, is where we have a cruise phase, we then, we then um, rotate to, ent to get into um, an entry orientation, and then we separate the spacecraft. Um, and if we describe each of these stages, what we're doing is we're talking about the state of the spacecraft over time, and we're not worrying about how to achieve that state. We're pretending, we're working in an abstraction in which the state is directly observable and directly controllable, right? So we like to think about these systems as systems in which the state is directly observable and directly controllable, and then later we have to go through all the work work to write programs which maintain that abstraction, right, while we have failure, right? So the idea is that when we program a system, we write programs in terms of desired state, and those are, is our notion of goal, and then the job of a model-based executive is to maintain that abstraction. We provide a engineering model, the system under control, and whenever we, you know, in our storyboard here, we've said that we want to achieve a state, it generates a set of commands to achieve that state, and then it interprets its sensors to infer whether or not it achieved that state. That's the role of the executive. Okay, so let's then talk about as a programming language, right, to, to this guidance. We start with an embedded programming language, right? So we'll start with whatever your favorite embedded programming language is, which has, you know, parallel and sequential composition. But ultimately, those are general purpose languages that read observations and then write out control variables. So we'll use that as our abstraction. Um, as a formal model, we can, we can we can formalize this program in terms of a process algebra, but you can think of it as general purpose concurrent embedded program language, read sensors and writes to actuators. Um, and then in these kind of programs, right, the programmer had to take the storyboard, which I gave you in the previous slide, and figure out how to map between states and the sensors and actuators. In our case, we'll write down a program, which is a kind of a direct translation of the storyboard, right? And what it will do is it'll use the same control constructs, but it'll read states and it'll write states. And then we can describe those states more abstractly. Okay, so if the state of the system was directly observable and directly controllable, we just would use a traditional programming language and execute it. The problem is that the system was under sense, can't be directly observable and directly controllable, so the role of a model-based executive is to maintain that abstraction, right? So a program is really specifying a set of state, a state trajectory over time, so it's really a, a set point trajectory, right? This model-based executive is mapping between the set point trajectory to a set of control values, and then a state estimator is taking the observations and inferring what the state trajectory is. So in fact, in fact, um, you know, Richard has told you how to do that. I will sit down now and take any questions. 
Okay, so let, let's, let, let's go through what it would mean to execute the, one of these programs. And in fact, um, th this is what um, a particular executive called Titan did. Um, and it's mainly using the computational methods of the mode estimation and reconfiguration capability um, within a remote agent. So suppose we have this dual main engine, um, similar to Cassini, but it's made, uh, it's, this is a much simpler version. We take fuel oxidizer, combine them into the engine to produce thrust. We can use engine A or engine B. Um, we also have a camera that we want to turn off to, uh, to avoid plume impingement. Um, we want, the operator wants to be able to specify the, the desired level of abstraction. So what we'll say here is that what we want is for the programmer to, is that the operator has decided that I trust engine A more than engine B. So I want a program that says try engine A un until, uh, and until it either thrusts or I determine that it's faulty and if, only if it fault, faults go to engine B. So here's a program which would say that, right? So this program says, um, what I want to do is I want to put the two engines in standby and turn the camera off. And then this, this expression here says that, that once engine A is in standby and the camera's off, then thrust the engine, but stop if engine A's failed. And then this says if engine A has failed um, and engine B is ready, right, then thrust engine B. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. You know, the program makes, it makes quite a bit of sense. The thing that, that makes this program not executable is that all these statements in blue are referring to a state of the system and those states are hidden, right? I mean, there, there's a logical formula which would describe what it means to be standby. It's a certain state, right, of the spacecraft. Um, and we haven't specified how to achieve that state, okay? Um, likewise, we have these statements here which are talking about, about an estimated state of the system and those estimated states are not directly observable. So the job of the Titan executive is to infer these states and to generate control actions to achieve these states. That turns out to be not trivial. So let me just give you an example. Suppose we have the statement engine A is thrusting. Um, we'll find out that engine A is faulty because it's stuck a valve and then we'll, we'll fail over to engine B being thrusting, okay? So we need to generate a set of commands to thrust engine A. We need to estimate the failure and then we'll need to generate a set of commands to achieve thrusting B. So we start with the system. So we use a model of the system and our sensors to infer the current mode of every component and here we've indicated that the mode of every component um, is healthy, hence green, and that all the valves are closed. Given that the valves are closed and we want to thrust this engine, the system will infer um, to open the set of valves here and open the set of valves here, hence producing thrust. Um, and then I'll, I'll later in my talk explain how that's done. Um, the system um, then has to generate a plan, a sequence of commands to open these valves, right, and then turn off, for example, the device drivers to save energy. Um, the system along the way um, would need to deduce um, from sensor information that, for example, this valve is stuck closed, and further that there exists no configuration of these valves which can produce thrust in this engine given that this valve is stuck closed. You then report to the program failure, right, which is the programmer had said back here, tell me if it fails, and then I've told you to go to engine B. Okay, and so then then it now um, says engine B thrusting and infers to open this set of valves here and then achieves thrust. Okay, a lot of magic has occurred in order to do that, but there are algorithms now that are, are really general optimization algorithms which, which can do this kind of deduction efficiently. These are optimization algorithms which are operating over a combinatorial space. They're not solving a linear program or a mixed integer linear program, right? Um, they are solving a combinatorial problem. And the kind of inference or the kind of constraints that this constraint optimization um, algorithm is using our logical constraints as opposed to algebraic constraints. Okay, so that's the kind of behavior. Now, a couple of things to note here is that in this case, um, we were estimating the modes of the components, right, to, to, to be able to invoke planning. And here again, we were estimating the modes of the system to diagnose failure. So the ability to estimate modes is a central function. In this case, we were reconfiguring the modes, right, to achieve thrust. And then here we were reconfiguring modes to do repair. So the central concepts here are estimating modes and reconfiguring modes. Okay, so I will, hence, during part of this, I'll talk about how do we estimate modes. Now, we need some model to be able to do that inference. So what we're going to have is, for every component, we'll have some schematic. And then for every component, we'll define a set of modes. And those will be nominal modes, such as the engine being off, standby, firing. And then failure modes, such as it has the valve is stuck closed, or, or um, it's failed in an unknown way. Um, we'll describe the behavior within each of these modes. Here, for the spacecraft example, those will just be a set of logical statements, such as if a valve is open and the fluid is too high into the valve, then the fluid 
output is too high. Um, but in other cases, those will be a set of algebraic equations. And then we'll be going much closer to doing model predictive control. And then in the case where the system is faulty, we'll always entertain the possibility that it fails in an unknown way. And, and if something's failed in an unknown way, we know nothing about its behavior, hence we don't write anything. We say it can do anything possible. And then the system also has a dynamic, so we represent that by transitions between those modes. Okay, so you can think of this as a transition system together with a set of constraints associated with each mode. To represent failure, we have probabilities of failure, right? You can fail by transitioning to a failure mode. If it's intermittent, you can, you can transition back off of it. Um, and so that element of it looks like a hidden Markov model. So we're taking constraints, coupling it together with a hidden Markov model, and then we're composing these things together concurrently. Okay? Um, and then these models get to, be, get to be fairly complicated because we'll have a few hundred of these concurrent probabilistic automata operating at once. Okay, so that's what our, mo our, our um, program is. So just to kind of remind you, we specify the desired behavior you know, as an embedded program on state. We also provide a system model, in this case including a schematic and a model of each component represented as these things called probabilistic uh, constraint automata. Um, and then in order to execute that program, first what we'll do is we'll unravel this program over time to specify a desired set point trajectory. Okay, so it's, it's generating a set of goal states that we want to achieve, and those, that trajectory is conditioned on the current state, right? That, that's what that program specified. And then the two things that we'll be doing where we're doing deduction on this model is to estimate the modes of the system, right? To be able to evaluate the conditions in this program and to infer what our current state is. And then what we'll be doing is we'll be reconfiguring the modes of the system okay, to achieve the, the target states here. Okay? And this is really tracking the most likely modes of the system. So we're going to do a maximum likelihood approach of assuming the most likely uh, set of modes of the components are the true ones. And then what we'll do is we'll generate a set of actions to change those modes. Okay? And this is just one example of an autonomy architecture, but, but I wanted to kind of drive into it a little bit deeper. Okay? Um, so the couple of things to notice here will be that um, you can view this capability down here as a form of autonomous configuration health management system. Um, the Cassini you know, attitude and articulation control system also had, had a, a configuration health management system, um, which used more of a rule-based architecture. And here we're trying to infer the rules from a model. Um, also, you'll see elements of this kind of architecture, for example, within the mission data systems um, architecture, um, which Bob, um, Mitch, and the others worked at at JPL. So there will be a lot of architectural crossover. Um, and you can think of this, this program, if you use a visual depiction, as basically a state chart, right, or a form of state chart, so a Harkle automaton, which is constraining the state of the system. Okay, so there's a fair amount of architectural connections. Now, the other example I'm going to give you, so, so that example was kind of 1995 to about 2001, so a while ago. Um, um, it was really a uh, going down memory lane trying to trying to dig up those, those slides. Um, if we move kind of forward in terms of autonomous systems, right, a lot of autonomy is driven, driven more on terrestrial applications. Here's an application that Boeing has been having us work on. Um, kind of nice um, that Boeing, don't, don't tell the rest of the world, but they allow us to do pretty funky far out things. So they're interested in um, the notion of a personal air vehicle. So a dual mode vehicle that you can drive and you can fly. So tell me if the volume is too loud here, but I want to give you an example. So the question was, um, if you want to have your, uh, your father, your mother fly this vehicle, right, you want broad market penetration, then you probably don't want everybody to become a certified pilot. So you provide the certified pilot. You then act more as a, a passenger in a robotic air taxi. You want uh, to be able to talk to this, this air taxi, right, in a natural dialogue. You want to be able to think about emergency landing points. You want to be able to say, look, I really don't want turbulence. So it knows your notions of risk and kind of respects that risk. So we develop an architecture which does that. Um, and I'll just give you an example of that.
Okay, so there's a couple of things that are going on, on in here. Um, the first is that the user is specifying a set of goals, and those goals can dynamically be changing, and the environment is dynamically changing, and it's trying to figure out a way to feasibly achieve the user's goals as the environment changes. At a certain point, when those become inconsistent, then what it's doing is it's doing diagnosis, but it's not doing diagnosis of hardware. It's doing diagnosis of the user goals, and then, in, in fact, using the same algorithms, right, as we use for hardware failure, and what it's doing is it's basically presenting to the, op to the operator um, um, a set of options for how to change its goals to be consistent, and it has the ability to be able to explain that. So this notion of collaborative diagnosis, an idea of diagnosis, you can, you can use very much in, in a very broad context. Here what we say is that the user is an expert in terms of goals and their preferences. The vehicle is the expert in terms of driving, and what we're trying to do is to be able to use the diagnostic process to figure out how to mediate information in terms of being able to express goals and preferences to the vehicle and for the vehicle to be able to explain just enough about why it can't um, construct a travel plan to try to help inform the user. Okay, the other thing to, to notice here, so it's doing a higher level mission plan, you know, planning contingencies, those kinds of things are more similar to the spacecraft. The other thing is, in fact, it is doing, doing a robust model predictive control here. So exactly what, what, um, what Richard was talking about, right? So it has a mixed engineering linear program encoding of the dynamics of the vehicle and then it's doing planning based on that. This is a goal-directed model predictive controller, so we're giving it a higher level plan in terms of desired states and temporal constraints, and it has to be able to satisfy those constraints. The other thing is, is that it is doing a form of, of kind of stochastic model predictive control. So the user has specified the level of risk that it's willing to accept. For example, that I don't want to get too close to the weather system, and I'm willing to arrive at the airport a little bit late, or fly me through the storm, through lightning and thunder, but get me there in time. And based on the level of risk, the system will kind of adapt, uh, you know, adapt its control trajectory to work within those risk bounds. And it can prove the correctness of that, of that control trajectory using a stochastic model. Um, and the kind of architecture for this ends up involving an architecture where it's using, performing different levels of planning in terms of higher level activities, um, continuous control with probabilistic constraints, and then planning with both mixed, discrete, and continuous actions as well. Okay, so that's just a, a different example of an architecture. So those are two, two examples of architectures. Um, the key elements involved in this will be the ability to do um, execution of a plan, that is decide what actions to form when and how, um, to estimate the modes of the system, and then to plan a novel course of actions. Okay, so let me just kind of, kind of go through each of these three elements um, until I run out of time. I'm, as I said before, I'll start with the plan dispatching. Okay, so what we want to be able to do is we want to execute a task when timing matters. And one example of timing matters is that we're supporting a time-critical mission, such as we're inserting ourselves into orbit, you know, within an hour insertion window. If we're doing coordination between multiple humans to perform a task, then time pressure also mat matters. So the kind of dynamic execution methods or task execution methods that I'll talk about um, can be used both in terms of control of spacecraft, where they or originated, and also for multi-robot or human-robot coordination, um, which is what we've done more recently. So here's an example. So we'll take a program here where the program is an unconditional program, and it's representing what we consider to be a plan. A plan is really an unconditional program. Um, so here we have just two threads of execution, where we have a set of activities which correspond to having these two rovers move through a set of waypoints and then rendezvous together at the end. Um, we specify both the activities, right, that we want to perform, and then we specify constraints on the duration of those activities, okay, which is what we give here. And then the problem is to execute those activities, um, confirm that they're executed correctly, and to decide um, when to execute those, those activities so they satisfy the timing constraints. So a plan fails either if any one of these activities fails or if those temporal constraints can't be satisfied. Okay, now the challenge in this is that if we want to be able to complete in a timely manner, then there are disturbances along the way. For example, this vehicle was, was doing a search. We don't know exactly how long the search would take. So if we scheduled a priority, which is what people would traditionally do, then we would either be too conservative or we would tend to fail. The approach here, right, pursued by Muschetta and others, and this whole bo large body of, of research on this since then, is to defer the decision of when to perform an activity till just before you, you've done that. And that resolves the uncertainty in the past. Um, but you need to be able to make decisions fast, and you need to make this, this scheduling decisions in such a way that all the const temporal constraints in the future can be satisfied. 
So I'm going to kind of present how that kind of dispatching algorithm works, and then I'll show you some generalizations. So if we talk about kind of task execution, we're given a temporal plan as input, right? We want to make sure that it is schedulable, and then our problem is to schedule it. Um, so traditionally, you'd schedule it beforehand, and then you'd execute it. Um, in this kind of dynamic execution approach, you dynamically schedule it, but you do some massaging of the temporal constraints of the plan in order to do fast scheduling. So what I'm going to do is explain to you how we do this reformulation and this dynamic scheduling. Okay. So here's an example of a plan. Here is, again, a set of activities. Um, in these cases, these activities are, are constraining the state of the system. And then there's a set of relationship, temporal relationships between them, such as um, these two activities co-occur. This activity occurred throughout this duration. And many different planners that NASA has worked with, um, Aspen, Europa, and the likes, use these kinds of qualitative temporal relationships. And then they also use some metric information as well, such as um, this activity can take, you know, take, should take between 50 to 55 minutes. So what we're going to do is we're just going to focus on the scheduling part of it. So we're going to have a set of constraints um, constraining the start and the end time of activities. I'm just going to throw away those activities and focus on the temporal constraints. Um, so here what we'll have and shown in circles is a set of events, A, B, C, and D. They could represent the start or ends of activities. And then I'm going to put some bound on the temporal distance between those two activities. So this simply says that B occurs 1 to 10 time units after A and so forth. Um, the scheduling problem then is to find an assignment of the times to each event which satisfies the temporal constraints. So here is an assignment which satisfies those constraints. Um, A is at 0, B is at 2, C equals the 1, and D equals 3. And the key constraint here is that what's implied by these two constraints is C occurs exactly one time unit before B, which is what we see here. And we'll go back to that example a little bit later. So the approach to, to doing scheduling is that we're going to kind of massage our temporal constraints and put them in a form where we can schedule them without having to do any search. Right? So we just assign values, and we're guaranteed to come up with a consistent set. So what we do is we take the set of initial temporal constraints. This is a slightly more complicated example. And then what we'll do is we'll infer from these temporal constraints any other constraints between pairs of events which are implied by the original set. Um, the algorithm is, you know, there are various variants. I'm either doing an all-pair shortest path or using Johnson's algorithm. Um, but the net effect is by doing a, gra a, you know, a series of shortest paths, we can compute all the implied constraints. So we'll do that first. Now, once you've done those, then what the nice property, so we'll call that a decomposable graph, right? A, a disc, what's called a decomposable simple temporal network. Once we have this decomposable graph, then we can simply pick some event, assign it a value, update these temporal constraints, assign another value, and come up with a consistent schedule. So that's what we're going to do here. So we'll pick some event, x0. We're gonna, it's our reference, so we'll just assign it 0. And then given that assignment, then we'll, we'll basically propagate this value through these local edges to compute bounds on these other events. Okay? Um, so in this case, right here is kind of the, the, the expected bounds on the, those events. We'll then pick another one, such as ls, assign it a value consistent with its bound, right? It has to be between 10 and 20. So here we'll just assign 15, and then we update the neighbors. And we just keep repeating that process until we have a schedule. The nice thing is that it's guaranteed that, that we can come up with an assignment which is temporally consistent. So we, then we don't have to back up. So we can do that you know, relatively efficiently. Um, so we could use that scheduling approach. Instead of scheduling offline, what we could just do is to create this decomposable form, right? And then once we had the decomposable form, we could schedule online. Now, the benefit of doing that is that, that, as I said before, is if we wait to schedule an event just before that event occurs, then any uncertainty in the past has gone away. We've observed those events, and so we know exactly how long they've, ta they've taken. So when we schedule, schedule that event, we kind of have kind of as much information available at hand to be able to decide what's a good time to schedule that. So that's the advantage of dynamic scheduling. Um, if I just try the algorithm that I gave you previously, we'll run into a problem, and we'll see it in just a moment. So we'll start again by setting A to be t equals 0. Then we'll assign B. Um, and let's just assign B to be equal to 3. Right Now that constrains D to be 4 and 4, C to be 2 and 2. There does exist a schedule. right? The schedule would be to have C is equal to 2, D is equal to 4. The problem is that C has to be scheduled in the past. Right? Um, so I've scheduled A. Right, at time equals 0, I waited for three time units. I decided to schedule B to be equal to 3. 
I then find, well, gee, it would be consistent if I had scheduled C at 2, but, but that time has been passed, so I can't, can't come up with a feasible schedule. So instead, what you want is an algorithm which assigns these events, right, so that the values monotonically increase in time, and we need to decide in order to assign these events so that the values monotonically increase. The way that we do this is to say, well, the reason why we can't schedule this is that this constraint here implies that B has to be scheduled one time unit after C. Likewise, B has to be scheduled after A. D has to be scheduled after B. And this tells me that D has to be scheduled after C. If I respect those constraints, right, then I would have scheduled A, then C, then B, then D, and I would have been fine. So what I simply do is to analyze these temporal constraints, I get a set of implied implied orderings here, right, which I can simply extract from these edges. And then when I do the scheduling, I assign these values in this order. And the algorithm works fine. So here we actually have a fairly simple algorithm for doing the dynamic scheduling. I do an all-pair-shortest path to infer the implied temporal constraints. Um, I extract out the orderings, right, that are implied by these temporal constraints. And then I just apply this very simple scheduling algorithm, right? And it's a very efficient, efficient algorithm. All right, that you can perform online. And it's guaranteed to be correct as long as, I mean, that is, that it'll respect these temporal constraints. But, okay, so that's the idea. There's been a lot of work since then on trying to do this for more expressive problems, right? So in this case, we're trying to achieve more robustness in terms of task execution by dynamically choosing when we perform an activity. Um, we can get additional robustness in the system if we also have multiple resources or multiple agents that can perform a task, and we decide which agent to perform that task. Um, if we have multiple methods to do something, we have a high-gain antenna, low-gain antenna, right? We decide between those antennas and how we operate them. And then finally, we can get additional flexibility if we can construct a novel action sequence while respecting those timing, timing constraints. And so executives in my group and others have developed executives which introduce that additional flexibility. Um, one representation of a plan, right, which has that, which encodes that flexibility task is called a temporal plan network. And in a temporal plan network, you express a set of possible contingencies, right, as well as different resource assignments. And then it does dynamic execution. The other area that people have done a lot of work on, um, and then another representation uh, called disjunctive temporal networks are also quite expressive as well. The other thing people have worked on is to have an explicit representation of uncertainty. So what I showed you so far doesn't model the fact that there are things that are uncontrollable. When I start an activity, I don't know how long it'll take. I execute a search, I don't know how long that's going to take. Um, it could be that it takes so long that I'm no longer able to come up with a consistent schedule. So the work where we have temporal representations with the model of uncertainty represent explicitly the bounds on the uncertainty of an activity. Um, so you can say um, the amount of time that it takes to do the search will be you know, 10 to 12 minutes. And then the dynamic scheduling algorithm guarantees correctness for all possible values of those uncontrollable durations. And generalizations of those have been developed as well. So let me just give you um, some example applications for two of these. You know, it's a body of work done by um, Bobby Effinger, who's, who's, who's here, John Stetto, who's at SpaceX, um, Julie Shaw, Patrick Conrad, who are, who are at MIT, um, and, and, and a range of others. So here we'll have two robots that are going to work in coordination. Um, we will have them perform a couple tasks under time pressure um, so that in order to succeed, one robot arm needs to fill in for the other robot arm. So the task, there's two shared tasks, which is this robot arm needs to pick up this ball, hand it to this robot, and drop it over here. Um, likewise, this robot arm needs to pick up this ball, pass it over to this robot arm, and drop it over here. And then we want to be able to take one of the balls in this bin, bin of, of two balls, and move it over to the home court of one of these robots, and the same for each of these four. Um, we don't need to move both of the balls. We just need to move one of those balls. So that's kind of a side test that one of the robots can do to fill in for the other one. Okay. In this case, there's two decisions that we'll allow. We'll allow a decision about when to start an activity and when to end an activity, and then we'll allow a decision about which arm performs, performs the the, the swap of these different balls. Okay? So they're going to do dynamics execution, just a generalization of the algorithm they gave you before. They have the shared task here. And the only communication that they're going to have is when they start an activity, they'll say, I'm starting that activity now. And then when they finish, they say, I finish now. Otherwise, the other arm is just adapting to the first arm based on its knowledge of 
where the current execution is and knowing what's necessary for the team to succeed. So here you can see them communicating back and forth. So we're going to inject a failure. So we're going to detain this arm. And then what we'll see is that this arm over here um, goes off and starts picking up other, other balls and moving those over. And the reason why it's doing that is that there isn't enough time to complete by the deadline if this one doesn't fill in for the other arm. Right? But as soon as we let this arm go, right, then, um, then this arm goes and helps out. Because again, if it just lets this arm sit here and wait, then there's not enough time to complete the task. Okay? So you get a fairly nice emergent behavior. It does mean that a lot of this about task execution is about coordination, right? whether or not it's within a single space system or between multiple robots. Here's another example, right, where what we've done is we will represent the fact that the choice that this robot is making, or that we want this robot to be able to decide, decide what task it's going to be performing, uh, that's considered to be an uncontrollable. So this arm, what you'll see is that it'll always wait and it'll pause to see what this arm is doing. Um, and only when this arm, so if this earlier, when this arm went off and did a side task, this one quickly did a side task. Uh, but it, when this arm decided to do a swap, this arm was there ready to, to not slow it down. And that's because we represented this robot, quote unquote, the leader, as uncontrollable. And this, that is, we wanted to not constrain the set of choices that this robot would make. And then this robot had the task of making a set of choices which would never constrain what options this arm had. That's, uh, again, kind of leveraging the, the notion of a model of uncertainty. Um, and then we can also apply these same ideas um, to coupling with the control system, where in this case we have a walking machine, we have a task description which corresponds to representing the pose of the robot, and the kind of reasoning that is going on here is that the system needs to decide when to heel strike and toe off to keep its center, its center gravity over its feet, given this is an underactuated system, and so the system needs to analyze the controller to identify how quickly it can actuate it in respect to those time constraints. Okay, so that gives me, takes me up to kind of task execution, right? And again, you know, in terms of making systems robust, you know, I really think task execution is at the center of it. And then here I'll go into some more capable decision-making tools which support that. Okay, so first diagnosis, mode estimation, and then plan generation. We'll see if, if we get there. Okay, so again, I showed you, showed you the problem of being able to infer what the state of these different components are. They can be failure states, or in command confirmation, they can be the nominal states. There's a number of issues that we have to deal with. One is that the failures are hidden. The components are not directly observable, right? Um, they can fail in a novel way. Often they fail in novel, novel ways that we haven't seen before. There can be multiple points of failure. There can be an arbitrary number of multiple points so, of failure, so we don't want to just assume single points of failure. The failures can be intermittent. Things tend to intermittently fail before they hard fail. So we want to be able to handle the fact that it's transition, it's stuck closed for a little while, and then it seems to be actuated again, and be able to deal with that intermittency. Um, or if the monitors are triggering, we want to be able to kind of wait a while, right, until the monitors have a hard failure, right? So we want to deal with um, intermittent failures. We also want to deal with the fact that the, the failures may be a very small signal, kind of at the same level of the, the noise. And then as we add in more software, on top of our systems, then the symptoms of the of faulty hardware may be manifesting themselves by interactions with the software. So we need to be able to reason about both the software and the hardware as well. That would be a big agenda to try to cover in the next 17 minutes. So I'll just try to try to cover the, a couple basics of it and then and then jump forward. So the idea that we're going to pursue is kind of based on the notion of model-based diagnosis and consistency-based diagnosis. And I'll give you a very simple example. So the diagnosis problem is given a set of observations of some system and a model of it, um, then construct a diagnosis which in some way accounts for the symptoms. So here we have three components, or five components, three adders, two multiply, or two, oh sorry, there are three AND gates, two exclusive OR gates. We have this set of inputs, these outputs of it. From these inputs, if these are working correctly, we can predict the values here. Um, and those values that we would predict would be f is 1 and g is equal to 1. Um, but our observation here is that f is equal to 0, although we observed, although uh, we, we predicted 1. Hence, that's a symptom. 
And then from that symptom, we isolate the cause of failure, right? So we can do this prediction. This is not symptomatic. Um, and a plausible diagnosis that accounts for symptoms might be, as a single fault, might be that A1 and A2 is broken. That these imply that this is okay. Um, this implies that one of these three are okay. Um, but this being faulty alone wouldn't account for these observations. So the single faults are A1 and X1. So how do we really do that? So, well, it depends on the notion of account. So in consistency-based diagnosis, what we'll do is we'll say that um, a diagnosis needs to be consistent with a set of symptoms. We also want to be able to deal with novel failures, right? So in a novel failure, we don't know how a component behaves. The only thing is that we know that if it has a novel failure is it's not working correctly. So we're going to use the notion of consistency to say, okay, it's not working correctly. It's broken somehow, um, but, but, it's not, but it's not okay. And then to entertain the fact that a component can fail in any way, if a component is faulty, what we'll do is we'll simply say it can do anything. If it can do anything, then it imposes no constraint on the system. So for all the faulty components, we'll simply suspend their constraints. So this is an idea that was kind of introduced around 84. Um, but it does allow you to deal with multiple faults. So the approach that I'll present here is, is a consistency-based approach where we'll say we'll have a hypothesis that a set of components are broken. We'll call them the unknown mode. If they're in the unknown mode, then we'll suspend their constraints. So here is more precisely the problem. So we'll have some structure, right, some schematic. For each component, we'll describe a set of modes. In this case, a component will be either good or it will be unknown. If it's unknown, it imposes no constraint. If it's good, then we'll write down a set of for example, logical constraints describing its behavior or algebraic constraints depending on the system. Um, a candidate will be an assignment of good and unknown to every component, so that means that we can handle multiple faults up to everything being broken, right? And then a diagnosis is a mode assignment, right? An assignment of good and unknown to all component modes such that that mode assignment, the observations in this model are consistent. So the diagnosis is simply one of searching through the space of possible mode assignments testing consistency against this set of constraints and the observations and returning those that are consistent. The trick is that that space is exponential in the number of components. Okay. Um, also in our application, not only did we want to be able to diagnose when something was faulty, but we also wanted to know what, whether that, for example, the valve was open or closed. So what we'll do is we'll expand the set of modes so we have the unknown mode. We also have several nominal modes. So the the valve could be open and closed. And then we'll also introduce fault models, right? Such as the, in this case, the inverter is stuck at one, stuck at zero. The valve is stuck open, stuck closed. So we can refer both failure modes when it is highly likely given the set of observations, but we can also entertain the possibility that it's broken in an unknown mode. Now, I did use the word likely, so in a moment we'll add in probabilities, but for right now we're just going to talk about consistency. So, so Again, the diagnosis problem is given an assignment to the modes, um, find an assignment which is consistent with the observation in the models. The space of di possible diagnoses I mentioned before can be very large, so we'll represent them compactly by a set of things called partial diagnoses. So, so a partial diagnosis is an assignment to modes, right, which remove the symptoms. What I will mean by that is that um, if, if, for example, in that partial mode assignment here, I've said that A1, A2, and X2 is unknown, then I can, assign, I can assume that either A3 is good or unknown, and likewise the X1 is good and unknown, and the inconsistency I got from these observations are gone. Okay? So in the diagnostic process, I won't generate all diagnoses. What I'll do is I'll generate those partial diagnoses which remove the symptoms, and that corresponds to if I, if I extend the assignment to that partial assignment, then, it, then all possible extensions are consistent. And then I don't need to generate all partial diagnoses. In fact, I only need to generate the smallest one. And I refer to those as kernel diagnoses. Those are simply the smallest partial diagnoses. Okay? Now, so how do I do it? So the problem is to generate the kernel diagnoses. Um, so I'm going to do it by a divide and conquer approach. Um, so what I'm going to do is that for each symptom, I'm going to come up with a diagnosis for that symptom called a conflict. So here I said that if A1, A2, and X1 are working, then I would predict F to be equal to 1. However, I observe F to be equal to 0, hence 1 of A1, A2, and X1 is not okay, which I'll write down here. So I know that it's inconsistent for all three of them to be good, and hence one of them must be broken. Okay? So a conflict is a partial assignment which is inconsistent, um, and it gives me a diagnosis which is one of those assignments is broken. Okay? I can infer other symptoms. For example, assuming that F is equal to zero 
and x1 is okay, then I can predict y is equal to 1, and then from z is equal to 1 through a3, I can infer that g is equal to 0. That's inconsistent with the observation 1, so that gives me another symptom and a conflict that one of those four components is broken. Okay, so here I had to do a little bit of, of bizarre inference here. And in fact, something that I expected to be correct gave me some additional information about what components might be broken. So I have another conflict which says that one of A1, A3, X1, or X2 is broken. If I wanted the single faults, then I would just combine the results of those two conflicts. Otherwise, a global diagnosis is one which basically combines what I've learned from those two conflicts. So here are the two conflicts. Here's the diagnosis for each of the conflicts. I need to be able to kind of come and start a diagnosis which covers all the conflicts. And so what I'll just do is to do set covering to cover these. So for example, um, I can just pick, pair, you know, pick pairs of assignments from here. Those are possible diagnoses. And then I just keep the smallest set. So A1 equals unknown um, covers both conflicts. Um, A2 unknown, X2 is unknown, covers the conflicts as well. So here what I'll see is I actually have two single fault diagnoses and two double double fault diagnoses. Other components could be broken, but given what I've observed, at least these are the set of possible candidate diagnoses. Okay, so that's how it works. Um, the problem is that it's always the case that everything could be broken. Unlikely, but it's possible. So the way that I distinguish between everything being broken and one thing being broken is likelihood. So what we'll do is we'll add in probabilities, and then what we'll do is we'll compute the most likely, or enumerate the most likely mode assignments given the set of observations, which given my amount of time, I'm not going to go, go into detail, but I'll give you an intuition about the desired behavior. So what we're going to do is we're going to frame the diagnosis problem as being, for each component mode, we'll give you an a prior probability right, of that component failure. We'll also, given a set of observations, we'll compute the probability of a mode assignment given the observation, and then by Bayes' rule, we'll use that to compute the likelihood of a diagnosis. Okay. Um, let me just give you an intuition about how the algorithm works. So the approach that we're going to do is that we're not going to discover all conflicts and then generate all diagnoses. Instead, we're going to use more of a generate and test approach where we enumerate the diagnoses from most likely to least likely. We generate a hypothesis. We test it for consistency. Right? So we generate the most likely hypothesis. We test to see whether or not it's consistent with the observations. If it's inconsistent, then we'll update our probabilities. We'll learn from that inconsistency, which is a conflict. Right, and then we'll use that conflict to generate another hypothesis, right, which resolves that conflict. So the process of diagnosis is one of constantly discovering conflicts and enumerating hypotheses from most likely to least likely until we've enumerated the set of most likely diagnoses. So let me just give you an example of that using the engine. So suppose right, that we have, again, the engine here, a little bit more complicated version of that. Suppose that we have an accelerometer. Right? We, can, we, can, we can observe the flow a fuel and oxidizer here, and we can observe the pressure here, right? And we've observed, for example, that the two pressures are nominal, the flow is zero, and the acceleration is zero. Using a subset of these observations, we can, we, we can extract conflicts. So the first thing we'll do is we'll say, what do we believe to be most likely? A prior, we believe that everything is working okay. So they'll be in the states that I command them, which are the ones that are shown here. And then we test consistency of this mode assignment against the observations. Suppose we focus here on the, the flow is zero here, right? Given this flow path here, we should observe flow, but we don't observe any flow. Hence, one of these components along this path must be broken, which is what we've shown here, okay? So, so given this observation, we know that one of these components must not be open. So that's our first conflict. So we want to resolve that conflict. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll pick the component which is um, most likely to fail. There's a couple of these, these valves which are more likely to fail than other, and we'll presume that that valve is stuck closed. So we'll generate a single fault hypothesis, which is one of these valves, this one here, is stuck closed, and then we'll test consistency again. We test consistency against our other observations. We've now accounted for the fact that there's zero flow here, but given these two pressures are nominal and an acceleration is zero, then still something's up, right? Which is that this engine should be showing an acceleration, given that these are two nominal, and it's not. Hence, one of these valves must be broken. So now we have a conflict involving these valves, and then also these valves. The single point failures, which are the most likely, would be that one of these three valves is broken. These valves tend to fail more likely right, than these pyro valves. So hence, the most likely diagnosis that is that one of these two have, have failed. Now at this point, based on two tests of consistency, right, we've isolated ourselves down to two single fault diagnoses. So we've learned a lot by just two tests of consistency. 
right? And if we test consistency, for example, this valve being closed, then this valve being stuck closed would account for all the observations. In general, these kinds of algorithms, although we have a space which is exponential in the number of components, right, it tends to come up, isolate the most likely failures within about 10 steps or less. That's what's going on here. We can also use the same algorithms to try to reconfigure the modes of the system as well. And again, um, using a conflict-directed search, we can very quickly come up with a reconfiguration of the system. So it's not just probabilities that's helping us. The use of conflicts allows us to explore the space very quickly. Um, and so we use these kinds of, kinds of algorithms to, as a general constraint solver, and then we've used it to do planning, diagnosis, reconfiguration, the likes. And, the, and it's really this learning process that allows them to do very efficient online reasoning. Now, I want to be able to get into planning. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of jump over to the planning during my remaining six minutes. One thing to say is, is that the additional extension that you can make to this, this is that if we remember we had a set of concurrent transition systems, right, one for each component, right? And what we really like to do is to track how the, the device changes modes over time. We can observe that this is really a compact encoding of a hidden Markov model. So what we can do is we can infer the belief state, that is the, the assignment of modes over time, are the most likely trajectory or the most likely mode assignment. The problem is the state space is very large, so there's a number of approximate algorithms which do this search very efficiently where they enumerate the most likely mode assignments and the most likely trajectories. And those are quite effective. We can also, also write down a set of linear or nonlinear equations associated with each of these modes. Then that's a probabilistic hybrid automaton and then we can track the mode trajectory over time. In order to estimate the continuous state, we need to do some kind of common filtering. So really what we're doing is we're running a set of common filters to track the trajectories of the system over time for the most likely trajectories of the system. And that's, that's where a lot of the work has gone in over the last um, 10 years. I'm just not gonna jump in there. Okay, so planning. So the last part I wanna give is, is planning, right? So at a certain point, we would like the system to be able to respond to a failure by generating a novel, novel behavior. I told you how to execute a plan, but now let me talk a little bit about the major paradigms for generating those plans. So you can think of planning as a process of program synthesis, right, in which we impose a couple of restrictions. So these slides are due to Dave Smith, that we have a partially ordered set of actions so they can occur uh, concurrently um, typically, these actions are unconditional and there's no loop. So it's a very simple form of program that we're trying to synthesize. Um, we're synthesizing them, usually given an initial state, to achieve a set of goals. Right? Either those goals evolve over time, or the simplest case is there's just an end goal. And there's a number of different approaches. One it, called the generative approach is we just simply describe the command dictionary, the set of operators that we can give, for example, to the autonomous system of the spacecraft. And then it searches through the space of all possible combinations of those operators to one that gets us from the initial state to the goal. Another approach is that we give something that looks more like a program called our Harco task network, which gives a space of possible plans compactly, um, and then we do that expansion. And that's traditionally what's done on practical applications, and we can also use a representation of uncertainty um, and do planning using a Markov decision process. So here's an example. I'll just focus on general planning. So in this case, we have a set of statements that are true about the world. Um, We'll give it, which are propositions, such as a valve is open or closed. We'll give an initial condition. We'll give a goal condition, such as a new configuration. We'll give a description of a set of operators. The operator descriptions will say what's true in order to apply the operator, and then having applied the operator, what are the effects? Um, and then the problem is, given the initial state, apply a set of operators until the effects achieve the goal condition here. Um, if we give a very simple spacecraft example, right, then as a science instrument, we want to make a set of observations. So we have some target and some instrument that we want to apply. Um, before we apply the instrument to the target, we need to calibrate it on some calibration point. Um, to um, take an image of the target, we need to point to it. The instrument, we need, need to calibrate it. So the main operations that we'll have to support this is to turn and take an image um, and calibration. Um, so our propositions are the target that we want to point to, whether or not the camera is calibrated, and whether or not it has an image. Our operators are to calibrate the instrument, to turn to a particular um, location, and to take the image. Um, so here are the operators here. So this simply says that if we're pointing at a calibration point and we calibrate, then our, our instrument is calibrated. This says that if we're pointing to X and we turn to Y, then it's now pointing to Y but no longer pointing to X. Imaging says that if the camera is calibrated and we're pointing at X, then we can take an image of X. Um, 
here's a goal, which is that we have an image of A given that we're pointing at the calibration point, and then we need to piece these together to achieve the goal. So here would just be a, a more explicit um, PEXO description of those operators in a language called PDDL, which is not particularly, particularly readable um, given this short period of time. Um, but you can get the idea by the icons that I gave you. So there's three main approaches to planning. One is to work backwards from the goals, called goal regression, where we have a goal, which is the final state, which is to have an image of A and apply operators till we get back to the initial state. Um, there's heuristic forward search, which goes from initial state, keeps applying operators until you get to the goal, right? We go, go that way or that way. The only other choice is to kind of move in the middle. So the other approach is that we write down a constraint optimization problem, right, which encodes these operators, and then we search through the set of constraints for a set of actions to perform. If you look at the research community, I think the very first planners were over here, and then from um, the 90s, most of the time was spent in the 80s, right, to about 95, doing goal regression. Um, then suddenly the world changed, and everything from 95 to 2000 was using, use, using this as a constraint satisfaction problem. And then from 2000, everything is heuristic for search. Um, we're about on the cusp to go back over to here. It keeps going every five years, right? So I have three sets of slides for my students. Um, but we're starting to find that these actually work very effectively together. If the world is very decomposable, then divide and conquer, which is to go from goals to dividing into a set of sub-goals, works very effectively. These planners were working on those puzzles, right, where the world isn't very decomposable, and then forward search using a heuristic works fairly effectively. Most space applications have some decomposability plus a little bit of puzzles. So if you combine these two together, then we're finding that they work very effectively. Um, and I believe one of my students will talk about that later this week. But we'll see. But here what I just want to do is to show you um, an example of what this, this generative plan, kind of planning capability can do. So when um, we ran a planner on DSpace 1, then we had to give it a lot of heuristic guidance. It, took about eight hours to generate a plan given two megahertz of a processor. Here's an example where we're gonna give the robot the ability to do, to do block stacking, but the human is gonna help and interfere along the way, and what this robot is gonna do is to constantly replan using a general planner with no search guidance to try to adapt. Um, so I just wanna show you that behavior. So these are the same kind of capabilities that we're using for the air vehicle for now. The robot can't do between what right now? So it will ask, it will go to and ask for help. My standard, my destination. Great. So since I'm an ice cream, what I'm going to do is I'm going to help the robot by moving pink block closer to the robot. So I'm going to add a disturbance. So once the robot picks up the block, So the robot said, oops, because it, it just detected that it couldn't successfully execute its plan. Okay, good. So, so let me just kind of make a couple, couple points and then it will shift, shift to questions, right? Um, so um, what you'll see in this case is um, it is using a general planner, this is a heuristic forward search planner. We provided no search guidance whatsoever, right? So it's able to just, based on analyzing those operators, able to generate a course of action, right? Um, 
Um, so in this case, it didn't wait for eight hours to generate a plan. It was just regenerating the plan like that. So these, these technologies have gotten to the point where within their restrictions, they can plan very quickly. Um, the second thing is what it's doing is it's doing execution monitoring along the way. So it, it looks at the current state of the world and it says, not just could it fail right now or is there some action in the future in its plan where it's no longer going to be able to execute it? If so, it immediately says, I'm about to fail. So rather than waiting till, till it's boxed itself in, it immediately says, oops, and then it replans. So it's really this, this, this constant interleaving of planning, execution, and execution monitoring. Right? So you have a very adaptive behavior here. So it's kind of nice to get that behavior. Now the thing is that people have developed planners where you don't have any representation of time. They're very quickly. They're very fast. You can add in simple models of time, other kinds of elements that you'd have within the space domain, and they perform fairly effectively. However, if you take all the kinds of things that you naturally have in a space, space domain, right, which is reasoning about resources, reasoning about time, reasoning about indirect effects and the likes, then the current state-of-the-art planning technologies are not able to solve that problem. It's still an open question how far you have to go before, before those techniques will be up to, up to that art. The other thing that I want to talk about here, but you'll get a sense of, is given one of these plans, for example, a qualitative state plan, you need to execute them. So first time we had a project, right, where we were working with um, a control engineer who was doing model predict control. We said, here's our temporal plan, now execute it. They said, what? They didn't really kind of know what it meant to execute that, right? So there is this issue that as we have a plan, as a goal specification, our model predict controllers do need to be able to, to execute those plans, that is a form of goal-directed model predictive control. So there's been a fair amount of work now on coupling these higher level planning with model predictive control and other control strategies to guide them with respect to timing constraints and constraints on the state. And then those have been extended, as I, as I mentioned before, to handling stochastic models of uncertainty and constraints on the risk of action. Okay, so with that, I'll take questions.